I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 139. I'm not going to read it immediately, so keep it open, and I'm going to set it up first, and then we're going to break it down in a few moments, looking at three of the sections, or three sec- th- breaking it down into three sections and looking at each of those sections. But first we want to think about who we are. Now over the past few days, uh, my family and I have traveled back up to Clarksdale. We have gathered up the remainder of our stuff, loaded it in a trailer, and thankfully my uncle had a large trailer because when I hooked this large trailer up to the truck, I was like, I'll never need all that space. That's just kind of a waste. But man, when I got up there, that trailer kept filling up and filling up until I was wondering, wow, I didn't know we had so much stuff left over. This is crazy. So thankfully, we've got it all here. We completed the sale of our house, signed all the papers, and so we are are officially here. We don't have two homes anymore, and it's good to be here on the coast finally and settling in. Now, when we drove into town yesterday... Uh, that was a, a landmark that we could say, we, we are here in Biloxi and residents of this great city. So we're looking forward to settling in and being a part of the community here. So now I am beginning in earnest to do my work as your pastor, the shepherd of the flock. And my number one priority right now is simply to get to know you. Who are you? And I, uh, as I find out who you are, uh, and as we think about, as you think about, who am I and who is this guy and, you know, what's our relationship? I want us to, to stop today and really think about that question in more of an in-depth way. Who are you? And not just so you can give me information about yourself, but who are you really? What's your identity? Uh, it's a question we should all ask ourselves. What defines you? What makes you, you? The way that you answer this question, this question of who am I, it will have a huge influence over everything that you say and that you do. We always live out of some sense of identity. It's a very important question. And maybe you've never really thought about that question. But not knowing who you are or forgetting who you are contribute to the problems that we all have, that we all face on a regular basis. In fact, the problems with the world, the entire world, spring from Adam and Eve forgetting who they were. Now, you remember what happened there in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent came along, and the serpent was very crafty, and the serpent asked Adam and Eve and said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. It was completely contradicting, contradicting what God said. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So Adam and Eve 
heard the lie of the serpent. And the serpent said, look, if you eat that fruit, God has told you not to eat it because if you eat it, you will be like God. You will be wise like God. And so Adam and Eve sit there and look, hmm, well, that's a nice-looking tree. It's got nice fruit on it, and it surely looks delicious to eat. And also, it can make us like God, knowing good and evil, having that kind of wisdom. And that's what led into their first sin and the brokenness in the human race. Now, what if Adam and Eve had stopped and said, well, wait a minute. Now, we are God's creatures. God created us. He created us to worship and obey Him. And things have been going very well for us as we have done that, as we have lived here in the garden with all the blessings of this perfect place, as we have worshipped Him, having face-to-face fellowship with Him in the garden and obeying what He's told us to do. We're very happy doing that. And He's provided everything that we need here in the garden. And we shouldn't listen to any voice that comes along and calls into question His goodness and His intents for us. What if they'd have said that and they'd have told the serpent, no, get out of here. We don't, want to, we don't want to disobey God. We are His creatures. We are His people. And how can we do this thing to Him who has done so much for us? But you know what? They forgot who they were. They forgot that they were created beings and they decided, hey, we want to put ourselves in the position of being the creator. We want to have that kind of wisdom. We want to be like God. We want to call the shots. They forgot who they were. They forgot their identity and they wanted to trade in for a new identity. Instead of being God's creatures, they wanted to be God. See, an identity problem has led to all the problems in the world. Because that first sin opened up the floodgates of the sin nature that's in all of us. And the history of the world would be quite different if they would not have forgotten who they were as created beings who had been given everything by a loving Creator. Now that's just the beginning. The rest of the Bible is one episode after another where God's people have forgotten who they are as created and worshipping beings and they have gone in the exact opposite direction. You think of the children of Israel. God rescued them from Egypt. And, uh, you know, they were leaving Egypt. And I'm sure at that point very happy about it because they were slaves there. You know, they had to make bricks without straw. They were beaten and com- completely treated cruelly by the Egyptians. But as soon as they faced ad- adversity right there at the Red Sea, With Pharaoh's army coming down on them, they told Moses, why have you brought us out here to die? We were so much better off there in Egypt. We had had all of this wonderful stuff. See, a selective memory. They forgot who they were. They forgot that that God had promised to deliver them and to save them. And then the Bible goes on and on. And in the New Testament, the, the writers there spend a lot of time trying to help us to see who we are in Christ. And we've sung about it today. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Reminding ourselves that we have been saved and redeemed by Jesus Christ. We're children of God. That's what we are, John tells us. He's reminding us who we are. So our identity and remembering that is very important. Either we do not know who we are or we forget who we are. And what we do is replace our vertical identity 
as children of God, our Godward identity with a horizontal, worldly identity. We define ourselves by things in this world. And there are four common ways that we do so. I just want to briefly give you the big favorite four of mankind. Things we use to define ourselves. The first one is achievement. I'm defined by my success. Uh, We get a job. We succeed at that job, and it becomes who we are. It gives us meaning and purpose in life. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't work hard at our jobs. Uh, We should be industrious. We should use our gifts and abilities for God's glory. But when the job itself, when the achievements and successes that we have replace God as the ultimate goal, then we fall into things like workaholism where we neglect everything else and we become enslaved to our work. Or we neglect our families and the things that are really important so that we can have one success after another. And then we're called, we, we come to a time of crisis when we get older and we cannot produce like we once produced, we can't achieve like we once achieved, or the young, the young people come in and The jobs that were once given to us are given to these other people. And then we have an identity crisis. Who am I? I fell into this when I was in college. I was an athlete in college. And I remember after the last competition that I was engaged in, uh, my career was over. And uh, I sat there and I remember talking to Sarah. We were dating at the time. And I'm like, "I, I have no idea who I am. I'm no longer Tim Horn, the athlete, which was kind of the center of my whole being. And I was kind of lost. And I went through a bit of an identity crisis. Achievement can be a real temptation. A real temptation to use as a definer for us. Who am I? Well, I'm this person that does this or has achieved that. The second thing is relationships. I'm defined by my acceptance from others. This is especially a big temptation for parents. We can live our lives through our children. And their successes become our successes. And as they flourish, we feel good about ourselves and we have meaning and purpose. And you've seen so many people who have a real crisis when their children leave home because their meaning and purpose is gone. It's moved away. Or it could be our spouse. And we live to have that relationship with our spouse. Now, These relationships are all good things. We're supposed to have a good relationship with our children and our spouse, but they cannot replace our ultimate relationship, and we cannot define ourselves by relationships and the acceptance that we get with others, because that's enslaving too. When you live with the the relationship of your children at the center of your being, or the relationship with your spouse at the center of your being, or the relationship with anybody else at the center of your being, they are a human being, and you're placing upon them a huge burden that, that they're never going to be able to, to carry because they are finite sinners just like you are. And they are going to let you down. They're not going to achieve success all the time. They're not always going to be there for you. They're not always uh, going to love you as you see fit that they should love you. They're humans and they cannot deal with that pressure. And a lot of times when people do this, they end up driving their children and their spouse away because they put too much pressure there. A third thing, a third favorite way that we can define ourselves is by our own righteousness. This is especially true of churchgoers. 
You know, we're better than this person or better than that person. And, you know, we have maybe made a good start of our Christian life, but now we uh, have, have made some strides and we define ourselves by how good we act and how much better we are than other people. And the joy comes out of our Christianity. And it becomes drudgery because we're just trying to be better than the next person. And we become very self-righteous and pharisaical. It's easy to fall into that trap for Christians. And then finally, possessions. Possessions are a great temptation. We are defined by our house and our car and by the stuff that we have. This has come home to me uh, very much so, not that I've defined myself by the stuff I have because I don't have anything that's great, but I have a lot of stuff. And when you start moving it all, you're like, man, I really don't like all this stuff nor want all this stuff. Why do I have so much stuff? But our, our culture is constantly telling us we need this stuff. We need a better cell phone. We, we need a better car. We need a bigger house. And being satisfied with what you've got is not good enough. You've always got to have more. It's enslaving and drives you crazy. And people use these things as identity markers. Well, I've moved to that neighborhood, so I'm in now. I've got that kind of car, so I'm, uh, I've got this status. Well, all these things, when we define ourselves by any of these things, by our achievements, by our righteousness, by our relationships, by our possessions, or our looks, or pleasures, all of these things lead to delusion and disappointment and ultimately emptiness because they cannot do for us what only God can do. How do you avoid defining yourself wrongly? That takes us to Psalm 139. The heading of this psalm tells us that it is a psalm of David. Now, David had an episode, at least one episode in his life, when he forgot who he was. And I, of course, refer to his episode with Bathsheba. You know, he was the king of Israel, and he took advantage of that position. And he took another man's wife which led him down a path of adultery uh, and ultimately of conspiring to murder the husband of Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite. He forgot who he was. I mean, I can think, if I were in his position and I was doing the same thing, I was like, well, I'm the king, I can do what I want. And I want that woman, and I want uh, for this problem to go away, so I'm going to kill this man, and I'm the king and I can do those things. He forgot that he himself was under authority, God's authority, that God had put him in that position. God had chosen him to be king. See, when you forget those things, when you forget who you are and you start defining yourself by your achievements, your status, or anything like that, it leads to trouble. It did so for David. But he repented, and he still was a man after God's own heart. And Psalm 139 is David with perspective. And this psalm can give us perspective today to help us redefine ourselves, redefine ourselves like we should be defined according to God's Word. And here's David really seeing who God is and his relationship with God clearly. And as we work our way through this psalm, use it as an opportunity to worship because there's three things here. You gain perspective, you Keep from having the wrong identity by worshiping God as creator, well, first as sovereign, as creator, and as savior. And that's three things that I want to share with you today from this passage. David is worshiping God. He's not merely just saying, 
this is true about God. He is delighting in the fact that God is sovereign. He's, he's adoring God because God is His Creator. He's praising and worshiping God because God is His Savior. Verse 1 of chapter Psalm 139. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay Your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from Your Spirit? Or where shall I flee from Your presence? If I ascend to heaven, You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, You are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there Your hand shall lead me and Your right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. David hears being reminded and delighting in the fact that God knows everything. He knows everything we do. He knows everything we think. He knows everything we say, even before we say it. So he is, in a, to put it in a big theological word, he is omniscient. He knows everything. He's delighting in that fact. How different would your life be if you walked through each day conscious of the fact that God knows, sees, and hears everything that you do? He even knows the thoughts and intentions of your heart. That would have an impact on you. It also goes on to say that God is always there, even though we cannot see Him, even when we think He could not be there. It says God is there. You cannot even get away from Him if you tried to get away from Him. You could go to heaven, of course He's there, or as it said, to Sheol. Sheol is, it means being dead. It's the place of the dead. It's not hell, it's a word for death itself, the place of the dead. If, he, if you die, you can't get away from God, is basically what David is saying. God is everywhere. And another big theological word, God is omnipresent, which is not really that hard to understand. He's just present everywhere. Do we go through each day remembering that everywhere we are, God is there. He is present. He sees all and He knows all. And you see David delighting in that fact. He's not just noting that it's true. He's saying, wow, this knowledge, verse 6, is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Basically he's saying, this is blowing my mind to think of God knowing everything even before I say it and being everywhere. This is just a wonderful thing about God. He's delighting in it. Now, we'll continue reading at verse 13. God is sovereign is what verses 1 through 12 is. God knows everything. He is, is over everything. He's everywhere. And He's ruling and reigning because of who He is. second part points us to God as Creator. Verse 13. 
For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Here David, in his clear perspective, is noting that God is his creator. Before he was even born, before he was formed at all, God weaved him together fearfully and wonderfully. And he's saying, look, God, your works are wonderful. And really, they are. When you think about the human body, the intricacies of it, and how it's so wisely put together, beyond you know, a human understanding is the human body. And that God formed this and gave us our days before those days even existed. He's ordained our days. And he goes in verse 17 and says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. So God's thoughts are precious to David. And God's thoughts are of David. He, he thinks about you. Have you ever thought about that? We are just one of billions of people on the earth, but God knows everybody. He knows everything. And everyone is formed according to His will. He's a wise creator. And that's a wonderful thing to think about. And gives us perspective and identity. We are created beings. We didn't create ourselves. We're not just here by chance. But God in His wisdom has put us here in this place, formed us as we are, and made us for His own purposes. David is noting that. David is rejoicing in that. And that will give us perspective as we think about God as our Creator. Now verse 19, where he turns his attention to worshiping God as Savior. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. Oh, God. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. David here is taking note that there is a God who is good, and there is evil on the other hand. There are two sides. There is righteousness and unrighteousness. And God is saying, Lord, I'm siding with your side. I'm siding with the side of righteousness, with goodness, not with wickedness. But in turn, when he, when he does that, as he sides with the righteous, as he takes note of the unrighteousness and evil and wickedness in the world, he's saying, Lord, I know I could be one of them. Search me, O God. As we think about the wicked out there, search me. And know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What he's saying is, look, I'm a sinner and I could be one of those wicked. 
and I need your help. That leads to humility. Uh, he, he doesn't look self-righteously down upon the wickedness in the world, but he says, God, I'm with your side. But I also note that there can be a grievous way in me. And my heart can betray me and often does betray me. Please, Lord, lead me in the way everlasting. That's his prayer. Now, as we think about God as sovereign, as our creator, and as our savior, the one we need to save us, uh, that helps give us perspective. That's who we are. If we are believers today, God is our Lord. We follow him. We obey his voice. He's our creator. We are his beings. There's a distinction between the creator and the creature. Uh, We are not God, though we'd like to be. We have that temptation to be. But he is our creator. He is our God. And he is our savior. If it not for the grace of God, who knows where we would be. And when we forget that, it leads us into all kinds of trouble. So remember today who you are. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, said this, This great and self-evident truth, that God knows our hearts and the hearts of all the children of men, if we did but mix faith with it and seriously consider it and apply it, would have a great influence upon our holiness and upon our comfort. So may the Lord help us to have this truth that God knows us and that he has made us his children. To to believe that, consider it, apply it to our lives, it will help us to be more holy, to walk with him, and it will be a comfortable thought. Give us peace, peace of conscience, peace with God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the perspective that this psalm gives us. Lord, help us to remember that you are our Lord, you are our King, you are our Creator, you are our Savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.